The Russia-Ukraine standoff intensifies. U.S. special forces raid northwestern Syria while the Winter Olympics are set to begin in Beijing. Foreign policy expert Dr. Walid Faraz is here with analysis. And Pope Francis is condemning disinformation about COVID vaccines. And a Catholic fact-checking consortium is established. Father Tad Paholchik of the National Catholic Bioethics Center is here to weigh in. The Pope was heckled at his Wednesday audience, and the Vatican's financial corruption trial continues in Rome. Associate editor of the UK Spectator, Damian Thompson, joins us with his perspective. Finally, Deacon Rich Eason of the Archdiocese of New Orleans leads the way to happiness, holiness, and heaven with his new book, Spiritual Excellence. The World Over begins right now. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get right to it. U.S. special forces hit an ISIS stronghold in Syria. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine heats up, and the global pandemic continues as the southern U.S. border remains essentially open. For more on all of this, I'm joined by foreign policy expert and media analyst Dr. Walid Faraz. Walid, thanks for being here. I want to begin with the U.S. strike on Syria. How significant is this assassination, and how much does this disrupt ISIS? See, Raymond, the elimination of al Qurayshi, the uh, second commander of ISIS in the Middle, in the middle East, that's Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, is a great tactical success. This is showing that our special operations or special forces can go also into enemy territory, like they've executed here, uh, far deep inside, and then take out the dangerous uh, commanders. That's on the one hand. But what it brings to my analysis is the fact that a few months ago, we let go of Afghanistan to the Taliban. So we eliminate mm -hmm. one of these, and then hundreds and thousands are now organizing in Afghanistan. So, yes, the U.S. military always are successful in what we ask them, but we need to question the administration on the strategy in Afghanistan because it will have implications again in Syria, again in Iraq. ISIS is back. We eliminated one commander. We need a strategy to eliminate the organization. Hmm. I want to move on to other topics. Uh, Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz uh, arrived in Bahrain this week. Uh, on an unannounced visit, uh, Israeli's defense ministry said on Wednesday that Gantz would sign a security cooperation agreement with Bahrain, which, mm. along with the neighboring UAE, normalized relations with Israel in 2020. There have been missile attacks on the Arab Emirates by an Iran-backed Yemen group. Is that what's driving this agreement? No, it's beyond. You and I have discussed it, I just remind you, even years ago. Uh, we mm -hmm. projected that, number one, there will be an Arab coalition to rise against Iran, against the jihadists, against the Brotherhood, and that eventually there will be an Arab-Israeli understanding treaty in the region. All of that we've discussed in 17, 18, and 19, and it did happen, mm -hmm. especially after the visit by Trump 
former President Trump to Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. Now what is happening is beyond peace. This is not just peace. Egypt and Israel have peace. Jordan and Israel have peace. This is strategic alliance. I mean, especially the last agreement, the, the one you just mentioned, between Israel and Bahrain is something really at the vanguard of what has been achieved. And I believe that the missiles coming to you know, crash in, in the UAE are a response to this alliance. They are concerned ah. that the technology and wealth of the UAE and Bahrain married to the uh, military might of Israel is going to create the response to Iran regardless of us, regardless of, regardless of uh, the Iran deal. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking of the, the Iran deal, uh, the U.S. and European allies are talking again about restoring that Iran nuclear deal. Biden administration officials were talking about this on Monday. What do you make of restoring this deal? This is another disaster. I mean, we can't have every year a major disaster. Last year, we restored Afghanistan to the Taliban. This year, we're going to restore recognition and power and money to the Iranian regime. There is something very wrong about this foreign policy. But the question that I have mm. goes beyond that. I mean, we know that the current Biden administration is implementing the past Obama administration policies. But many are asking mm -hmm. me, why, why are we so stubborn and willing to go back to a deal that has proven that it would only strengthen Iran? It looks like there are a lot of interest uh, uh, behind this, a lot of financial interest. People want to go to the market, a lot of lobbies. And that, that is of great concern to me that our foreign policy is not only based on national security, but also on on lobbying and, and finances. Mm -hmm. Since the 2015 agreement, Iran's gone back to enriching uranium and has purified some of its new stockpile to a level of 60 percent, which can be used to create nuclear weapons. Now, uh, Rafael Grossi, the uh, director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the U.N. agency that inspects Iran's production facilities, said this, a country enriching 60 percent is a very serious thing. Only countries making bombs are reaching this level. Uh, Waleed, can Iran be trusted? And more importantly, what does the U.S. stand to gain, if anything, from a deal like this? Let's go point by point. Can the Iranian regime be trusted? Where can we, where can we trust them? Why are they buying, testing, developing long-range ballistic missiles? To, to transport mm -hmm. what? Flowers and roses? It's, it's designed, basically, to shoot or to use uh, tactical nuclear uh, bombs. So what is happening right now is the enrichment is at 60 percent. It's correct. This is very dangerous. But the Iran regime may surprise us with something else. Guess what? With the money they're going to get from the renewal of the Iran deal, they can buy a tactical nuke. So we are focusing on the enrichment of uranium, which can manipulate up and down, while they could get from, right. who knows, uh, North Korea or others, some tactical bombs, and would surprise us. Wow. The Biden administration sending extra troops to Europe this week amid fears of a Russian invasion into Ukraine. Now, about 2,000 troops will be sent to Germany and Poland. There are already 1,000 in Germany. That'll go to Romania. What do you make of Biden's response to this Russian aggression? The response seems to be a symbolic one, that the U.S. is standing with its NATO allies. Look, it's symbolic. It's good to send units to just be in solidarity, not even inside Ukraine, but with the NATO countries around uh, Ukraine. That should have been a no question asked 
movement, but the size is is not a deterring side size. I mean, if, if it was the uh, Trump administration, not to praise or not to pray or or, or or criticize, would have been much bigger, much larger. The the movement to, for solidarity with Ukraine is very shy. So what the administration need to do is really show the strength and then negotiate if they want. I mean, I, we should be with negotiations. We should be against war. But civis uh, passem parabellum. If you want peace, you basically need to prepare for the deterrence. Mm -hmm. Well, Ed, I want to continue with the security crisis that continues along the southern border. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection has reported nearly half a million migrant encounters at the border in the first quarter of this new fiscal year. Now, last year, more than two million unauthorized migrants came across the Mexican border. This number does not account for those who were stopped or detected. What's going on here? What kind of security risk does uh, that kind of intrusion pose to the United States? Raymond, of all the crises that you and I discussed and all the other battlefields, Iran, Ukraine, you name it, ISIS, mm -hmm. what's happening in the southern border is the most dangerous, because this is about the collapse, the, the complete collapse of a national border of the United States. That by itself is in a, mm. will give an appeal, is a call for millions and millions of other people from Latin America and from other continents to just come and move in. This, this game of manipulation of demography is very dangerous. Every country in the world knows that this is dangerous. If, if we allow this to happen, we don't have an immigration policy. This is an invitation for a collapse of our national safety, and that could eventually trigger a collapse of our national security coming from the borders. So mm. I think there needs to be a drastic change in that policy, and I don't know between now and next November how can that happen. On Monday, President Joe Biden uh, welcomed governors to the White House to discuss challenges facing the nation. He said this about migration. We're working a lot with uh, neighboring countries. A lot to do. If we figure out why they're leaving in the first place, it's not like people sit around and say in, uh, in Guadalajara, I got a great idea, let's sell everything we have, give it to a coyote, take us across the border, leave us in a desert, and a country doesn't want us, we don't speak the language, won't that be fun? Uh, how are we working with neighboring countries, Waleed? We know why people are leaving Guatemala and, and, and El Salvador. What is this administration doing with those countries to keep people from leaving and crossing into the U.S.? Under the previous administration, I was part of some of the ideas discussed. The, the strategy was to actually stop that problem not at the border and, and, and dealing with the mm -hmm. humanitarian situation. People are here, so what can we do? And even, even though we should be very firm and at the same time be humanitarian by creating a safe, creating a safe zone inside Mexico, as this has happened all over the world. We went, right. I mean, the previous administration went all the way to discuss it with the Central uh, American governments. That, that should have been the long term, because what we're doing right now, we are breaking international law, because this is an international issue. It's not an American issue at the border only, which is for most Americans, but it's an international issue. We should create the conditions for this population not to break three borders before getting to our border. And that would be in, in Latin America, in Central America, and in Mexico. And in the last few years before this administration, there was a beginning of an understanding with the Mexican government. They deployed 27,000 soldiers. 
That was huge. Mm -hmm. But of course, at the time, you know, the, the administration was involved in so much fight with the opposition that they, they did not allow the administration to develop the right strategies along with the Latin American governments. Yeah. And, and now the Department of Homeland Security, as of December 6th, officially relaunched the Trump-era Remain in Mexico policy after a district court order. Now, they cite a technical problem with the Biden administration's attempt to terminate that Remain in Mexico order. The administration says it's now obeying the court order, but simultaneously appealing to terminate the program. So is this program in force now, Walid? the Remain in Mexico policy? As far as we can see, you and I, uh, these reports of uh, night flights, uh, landing uh, individuals, large number of individuals in a number of cities, I don't think they are even applying the policy. Maybe on the format, on the formal level, mm -hmm. they are. But in reality, there is a strategic political decision which I can't even comprehend after many years of breaking those borders and bringing in in an unorganized uh, and disorganized way, thousands of people. For what? For domestic politics? I mean, be clear about yeah. it. This administration should be clear, saying, well, we want to change the demography of the United States to win in every election. If they say it, at least we have a debate. But they're, they're not even mentioning why they are doing this policy that not one single country in the world has adopted. Uh, press Secretary Jen Psaki, the White House Press Secretary, was asked why large numbers of single adult men are being released into the U.S. just hours after being apprehended at the border. Listen. But we know that just between March and August, which is a very small sample size, DHS says more than 47,000 of these migrants that were given notices to report did not show up. So why let them into the U.S. unsupervised in the first place? Well, again, we have a stringent uh, protocols and processes that we implement here. Uh, that includes uh, expelling uh, individuals who come in under Title 42, given we are still in a global pandemic, and includes uh, those who are, do not show up will be subject to the repercussions of that. <laughs> Well, lead your reaction. We know people do not show up for their court hearings. Why allow these men to come in and essentially be set loose, uh, and then they never show up for the court hearing? It's not just why do we allow them to come. It's way bigger than this, Raymond. There are organizations that are funded here in the United States by the supporters of this mm -hmm. administration who are going to Central America, organizing these movements. You follow me? All the way from Central America. Then they meet them at the border. Then they organize the passing or the thrust into this border. Then a lobby inside the United States that would push against any drive to organize it at the border and keep them in Mexico. And then it's the government that is shuttling them into cities and then say, well, they're going to go to their uh, court appearances. And everybody knows that they're not going to go. But beyond that, once they are illegal in the country, you're going to have some politicians who are going to come and say, well, they have the right to vote even if they are illegal. So you see the big picture? It's to bring voters from Central America and use them in the United States. That's reality. That's the brutal reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Waleed, I have to move on, and we could talk about the non-citizens that have been apprehended at the border, you know, who are not from Central and South America, but they're from other parts of the world. I mean, that porous border, as you mentioned, it presents a serious security issue for the United States, and it's ongoing, because we don't know who's coming in. Um, I, I need to move on, though. The U.N. has been accused of colluding with China 
to stall a Human Rights Council report on alleged abuses against minorities, specifically the Uyghur Muslims, uh, until after the Winter Olympics. According to reporting by the South China Morning Post, the UN's Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights said there was no timeline for releasing its report, but confirmed the publication would not be ready before the Winter Olympics. Is the UN's human rights body um, I, I can't imagine. They've been working on this report for three years, and now it looks like they're stalling until after this big show for Beijing. Well, of course, we've seen this uh, previously, Raymond, when the human rights body of the United Nations have been including the greatest abusers of human rights on the planet. I mean, these regimes were sitting there as protectors of human rights, and in fact, they were the ones who, are, who were obstructing them. With China, it's even the double. Why? We know there are human rights abuses in China. We know the issue of the Uyghurs. We know other issues as well, uh, including, of yeah. course, Hong Kong. The problem is that the bureaucracies around the world, including within the United Nations, somehow have been influenced by these countries, including, in this case, the government of China. So it's a vicious circle that you cannot break because those who are going to make the decision are already influenced by overseas powers. Remarkable. We'll have to leave it there. Waleed Ferris, thank you for being here for your insight. And you can follow Dr. Ferris on Twitter at Waleed Ferris. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. A new COVID vaccine for children five and under, toddlers, is set to be approved by the FDA. Meanwhile, a consortium of so-called international Catholic media are gathered to battle vaccine disinformation. Here to help us make sense of all of this and more is Director of Education at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, Father Tad Paholchik. Father Tad, thanks for being here. Uh, I want to start with this story, the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccines for children under five could be available by the end of February if approved by the FDA. Now, this will ultimately be a three-dose vaccination for children six months through four years old. What are the bioethical concerns involved here and the scientific concerns when children are at a much, much lower risk of severe illness stemming from COVID? Well, I think you've really uh, nailed it on the head right there, that the question becomes, do we have a proportionate reason here to start vaccinating infants and very young children? And, you know, mm -hmm. is the threat that we're, we're dealing with here of that kind of magnitude? And as We've watched COVID play out over months and now a couple of years. We have a much better handle on, on exactly what we're confronting. And it seems that there is a wide latitude for judgment there and for debate about the real benefits to be giving this mm -hmm. vaccine to such a young audience. There also remains yeah. a second consideration, which is connected to long-term effects. We still are mm -hmm. in the early phases of using this vaccine widely. And there are some effects from vaccines that arise further down the road. And when you're younger, you have obviously a longer lifespan ahead of you in which some of those effects might be able to be manifested. So that's a mm. concern as well. Uh, we need to be very, very careful before we launch into widespread vaccination of this age group. 
Yeah. And with schools, both private and public, mandating vaccines for students and faculty, uh, shouldn't the use of such a vaccine, particularly on young children, be left to the discretion of their parents? I mean, ethically speaking, why are we forcing them to do things with their bodies that their parents or they themselves may be uncomfortable with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we as a church always emphasize the importance of case specific discernments about our health care, and that includes vaccines and vaccinations. We have to judge them on an individual basis, depending on our particular circumstances and, you know, our other comorbidities and other features like that. So this is one mm -hmm. of the the problems with broad mandates that don't allow for adequate exemptions that you are sort of saying hey one size fits all here and that's never true in medicine every individual's body will react differently to different exposures and it's important mm -hmm. to factor that in as part of intelligent yeah. healthcare decision making Father Tad, one of the vexing uh, things in all of this public debate and the ethical debate over these mandates is the Vatican. I mean, the Vatican and Pope Francis himself have endorsed the use of mandates, even going so far as to suggesting that it's a moral duty to take the vaccine. Is it fair or moral to make vaccination a condition for life and work and to exist in society? Given the current state of this pandemic and the effectiveness of these vaccines, scientifically speaking? Well, I think you're right to point out that there is a lot of uncertainty still regarding the performance of the vaccines. And this is partly because we have new variants like Omicron mm -hmm. popping up. We, uh, you know, don't know that this always works with the kind of direct effect that sometimes is claimed. In other words, one of the claims you hear a lot is that the elderly will be able to be uh, always protected and that anybody who right. gets the vaccine will have the advantage of avoiding hospitalization. But if you look in Israel right now, they keep very good statistics there. Uh, they have about a thousand people currently facing serious COVID and they're hospitalized and of those, uh, about 500 are fully vaccinated and another 100 mm. are partially vaccinated. So it shows you that this is not a silver bullet. I think that we have gone about our decision making as if the vaccine were a silver bullet. And if it were, then it might make sense to become a kind of cheerleader, if you will, for mm -hmm. the vaccine. But I think, you know, we as church cannot do that. We cannot be cheerleaders for a specific vaccine. What we need to be cheerleading for is for careful decision-making by all people, and especially by Catholics, that we have a duty of yeah. good stewardship to take care of our health. God expects that of us, and that is where our responsibility, where the rubber meets the road, if you will. That's a good segue to a recent report by Ed Penton, the Rome correspondent for the National Catholic Register, Father. Uh, he reported that Pope Francis met privately twice with the CEO of Pfizer. Now, precise details about the meeting are not known. Pfizer will neither confirm nor deny the meetings. But Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the uh, Vatican Secretary of State, recently said any Vatican employee who requests a religious exemption due to the vaccine's association with abortion were unjustified. He cited 
Pfizer's vaccine specifically as not having used fetal cells in its production. Now, Father, doesn't this seem ethically problematic for Vatican officials to issue these sweeping statements and basically dismiss religious exemptions after meeting with the Pfizer CEO? Well, it, it is important that conscience exemptions be made available. Uh, the Church has always emphasized the importance of respecting conscience. And so here the issue is that uh, there is this association, a distant association, with cell lines derived from abortions. But the Church has been quite mm -hmm. clear that this does not make it illicit to get vaccinated. In other words, one can mm -hmm. freely do that. But there still may be some individuals who in conscience say, this is something I don't want to do. And there should be a mechanism in the face of uh, mandates to allow for appropriate conscience exemptions to be obtained. That we need to have a wide latitude for those conscience protections to be in place. And we as mm -hmm. church should especially be modeling how that is best to be done. Father, in late January, Pope Francis made a statement. I want to get your reaction to this. He condemned spreading what he called disinformation and fake news regarding COVID-19 and vaccines. He said, quote, to be properly informed, to be helped to understand situations based on scientific data and not fake news is a human right. Correct information must be ensured, above all, to those who are less equipped to the weakest, and to those who are most vulnerable. Now, the Pope was speaking before a group of international Catholic media organizations who banded together to form CatholicFactChecking.com. Now, we're talking about groups like our Sunday Visitor and Alatia and others. Uh, just so everyone understands, this consortium is funded by Google and organizations associated with the Gates Foundation and Soros-backed groups. So they are not impartial here. Um, first, your thoughts on the Pope's comments, and then your thoughts on this consortium. Who decides what's fake news or real news or real information or real scientific data, frankly? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly the question. Who decides what is fake news? I mean, Raymond, just think back for a little bit. You know, at, we were at one point, if somebody were to say something like this, that vaccines fail to stop COVID transmission from person to person, then mm -hmm. that would have been declared, oh, fake news. That's fake news. Right, no, you'd have it's a warning. Not. It turns out <laughs> exactly the vaccines don't actually do that. Um, or if you were to say COVID vaccines may have some bad side effects, well, that's fake news. Everybody says, well, we don't know that yet. We've only had the vaccines for, you know, a little over a year in widespread use. And there are other instances where there have been bad effects. For example, the influenza vaccine back in 1976, you may remember mm -hmm. it was given to more than 40 million people and it ended up being linked to at least 500 cases of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is that weird syndrome right. where you have damaged nerves and muscles. So, you know, to be able to, but again, it, that would be considered fake news if you say there could be any bad effects from getting vaccinated. So the list kind of goes on. You know, you could say, for example, if you were to come out and say that continual booster shots will be needed, well, in the past, they would say, oh, no, 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 you won't need any boosters. And now you look at Israel, they are on their fourth shot and there's no end to boostering in sight. So who's well, going to determine what is fake news? Well, 
And science evolves. Science is evolving. We, we keep making discoveries. And what we've discovered is clotting is a result of some of these vaccines, not all of them, but some of them, myocarditis in young men. And we're not talking about four or five cases. We're talking thousands of cases of this. So all of that has to be taken into consideration. And the repeated boosters, there was that British study, that the repeated boosters destroy your natural immunity. All of that has to be looked at, studied, considered. But to simply say this is misinformation, who are you to declare that? I'm sorry. And frankly, this Catholic fact-checking site, when you read it, one quickly realizes its goal is to disparage religious exemptions and poo-poo natural immunity. Now, isn't that itself disinformation, Father? Yeah, absolutely. And I think here the problem of labeling others as disseminators mm -hmm. of fake news or as anti-vaxxers, you know, I think it is important to say the church is definitely not an anti-vax institution, but it's also right. not a gung-ho, every single vaccine everywhere needs to be gotten institution. The church walks a middle line, and all of us as Catholics should do that and maintain that sense of balance. Because otherwise, Raymond, what do we end up doing? We end up polarizing the environment around us, the anti-vaxxers mm. against the pro-people, and nobody's willing to right. grant that there may be some truth on both sides that needs to be looked at, discussed right. honestly and openly, and allow the science to work out the details here. And there's legitimate scientific disagreement on this. I mean, look, there's a reason. I hate to be the bearer of, of uncomfortable news, you know, but there's a reason that several FDA officials resigned, because they were concerned about allowing vaccines in a certain young population. They didn't see the necessity or the, or the reason for that, given the outcomes if they got COVID. So when you have professionals who've been doing this for decades, worried about that sort of action, and there's a political motivation, that's our responsibility as journalists and scientists to ask those hard questions and be willing to be fully transparent with the public, because it's ultimately their health, and they have to make those decisions in a free society. Now, the Pope went on to cite what he called an infodemic, which he described as a distortion of reality based on fear, falsify or, or invented news, and, quote, allegedly scientific information. Now, Father, this whole COVID narrative has been based on fear. I mean, look at the lockdowns and, and that new Johns Hopkins report that said there was no benefit of having those lockdowns. Is there a danger in trying to turn evolving science into dogma? And that's, to my eye, what seems to be happening here. Yeah, I think that's an that's a excellent question, and I think it's a fair criticism of some of what has been going on around us. It's imperative to recognize that you have to take some of the scientific declarations with a grain of salt, sometimes a very large grain of salt, because it is mm -hmm. evolving and the details are changing. What I think is really bad is when you have scientists, in a sense, being themselves excluded from the discourse. And we've seen some of that. You mentioned some of that uh, going on in government agencies, but also in other venues in the media as well. You know, I'm thinking of... Uh, um, the scientist Robert Malone, who, you know, is an mRNA mm -hmm. uh, inventor who has had a lot right. of difficulty uh, recently, you know, in the press, in the media. So there's sort of a, uh, a kind of propaganda that is taking a foothold and saying certain people will be allowed to participate and others not, rather than the right. free exercise of science 
by those who indeed are qualified as scientists and our stakeholders, you know, to be able to really discuss the pros and the cons all the way through. So I think turning this over to consortia, like we're discussing, uh, risks skewing that process and preventing it from getting really the truth out to us as quickly mm -hmm. as as possible, because that really needs to be the goal in the midst of a pandemic. Right. Well, and with all due respect to the people in the Vatican and, and these Catholic journalists, look, I know a lot of these people. I've, I've been to these conventions. Uh, these are my peers. I've sat at press conferences with them. Frankly, they don't know. Are we saying that Vatican bureaucrats and Catholic journalists know more than the guy who created the mRNA vaccine and epidemiologists and disease specialists at Yale and Harvard and Stanford? Is that what they're really saying? Because that sounds like what they're saying, that they're going to Catholic fact-check people. We need a Catholic fact-checkers for the fact-checkers now, Father. I, I, this story just sent my blood pressure through the roof, because I hate the idea of dilettantes setting themselves up as somehow experts, and they want to lord over and control information flow. Nobody's allowed to do that in a free society. Do that somewhere else. Do that in China. Yeah, I, I think that's a re real concern that we're up against now as, in a sense, information flow is controlled by a very small number of power brokers mm -hmm. like Facebook, Instagram, uh, and, you know, Google. So this is something that, you know, is a very, very broad concern. We have to be watching this into the future. We've seen it play out specifically with respect mm -hmm. to COVID vaccinations. But I think, you know, this has broader implications for us to keep an eye and to be sure that we have, you know, appropriate antitrust kinds of initiatives to be sure that the right. power is not too concentrated in just one or two places. You know, as the old yeah. saying about power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I mean, it's human nature, uh, Raymond. It's just human mm. nature. Yeah, well, th this this also feels like government and corporate interests trying to rein in independent media sources. And now they've gotten so granular, they're trying to control and censor Catholic uh, free media. That can't be allowed. And the people should push back hard against it. Uh, you can read Father Tad's commentary and learn more about the ethical profiles of the COVID vaccines on the National Catholic Bioethics Center website, ncbcenter.org. Thank you, Father Tad. Thank you very much. Great to be with you, Raymond. The Vatican's financial corruption trial continues in Rome, and Pope Francis is heckled at his Wednesday audience. He also made some provocative comments about who's included in the communion of saints. With me to discuss these stories and many more is associate editor of The Spectator UK and host of the Holy Smoke podcast. Damian Thompson joins us from London. Damian, I, I want to start with this ongoing financial corruption trial at the Vatican. Last week, new indictments were handed down, uh, and there was controversy when one of the accused, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, boycotted the hearing when he found out that his alleged relationship with a female advisor would be the topic of discussion. Now, this week, an Italian appeals court nullified the pretrial arrest warrant of the prime suspect, Gianluigi Torzi, in the fraud and embezzlement case. Now, Damien, London-based Torzi denies any wrongdoing. What are you hearing in London about all this? And what does this do to the Vatican's case against Torzi? 
Well, what I'm basically hearing is that everybody's terrified that Betu will decide to sing like a canary and reveal exactly what money was spent and by whom and, most importantly, what the Pope knew. And the question of what the mm. Pope knew is fundamentally overshadowing this entire controversy, these entire complicated legal proceedings are designed, I think, to make sure that the question of what the Pope knew is never raised. Hmm. The Vatican has announced that it signed a contract to sell that luxury London building that's really central to this case. What do you know about this property? And what does all of this say about the Vatican's portfolio managers? It says that their portfolio management is really more fitting to a banana republic than the Holy See. What on earth they thought they were doing, buying this gigantic former Harrods warehouse? In, under such complicated terms and conditions. How they thought they were going to turn that into a massive lasting profit, I don't know. As it is, they've lost a fortune on it. And at a time when the Vatican's looming pensions crisis threatens to impoverish priests all over the world, um, the mm. purchase of this luxury property was obscene. But very characteristic of the Betu era. Yeah. Hmm. As you bring up Beichu, I, I want to get your take on uh, on his. Really, he's one of the defendants in this trial. Last week, we, we reported he skipped out of the hearings to avoid talk of his alleged relationship with a woman. He denies that relationship. Now, Cardinal Beichu and also Cardinal. Rodriguez Maradiaga, who has also been associated with some corruption, have both been favorites of the Catholic press, particularly in the U.K. In the tablet, for instance, they, they once hailed Beishu as a reformer. Um, Damien, your reaction to the Beishu story and his depiction in the press, have they reformed that depiction at all? The depiction of Betu as a reformer by Christopher Lamb, who's the Rome correspondent of the tablet, was an absolute disgrace. And I keep drawing the attention of the editor of the tablet, who's actually not a bad guy, to the wretched track record of Lamb in sucking up to Betu and now Maradiaga, uh, Rodriguez Maradiaga, who's, um, you know, whose track record is atrocious. Very serious allegations of corruption have been made against him, which the Pope has mm -hmm. essentially refused to investigate, even telling him that, oh, you're innocent, even before the non-investigation began. How he can possibly be associated with any sort of reform, I do not know. But there is no limit to the gullibility, or perhaps I should say pliability, of the tablet, and Mr. Lamb in particular. I want to move on to the Pope's Wednesday audience this week. Pope Francis made remarks about the communion of saints, Damien. Uh, I'd like your reaction to this. He said, let's think about those who have denied the faith, who are apostates and who are the persecutors of the church, who have denied their baptism. Are these also at home? Yes, these two, the blasphemers, all of them. We are brothers. This is the communion of saints. Damien, your reaction to those comments, are, are blasphemers and apostates part of the communion of saints now? If they are, then the communion of saints has absolutely no validity as a concept whatsoever. But I think most troubling of all is the inclusion of persecutors. This blessed are the persecutors outburst, as I call it. 
I mean, when you think of how vigorously the church is being persecuted all over the world and how little the Vatican says, particularly when the persecution has been carried out by China, I wonder if these remarks weren't dictated by President Xi, who, after all, is more or less regarded as a living saint in the syncretic fake masses that the Vatican is forcing faithful Chinese Catholics to attend. Maybe he rang up mm. and said, can you include me in the communion of saints? It was a it was a, a, a perplexing uh, comment. I mean, I, I you know, and we say the papal charism, you know, covers faith and morals. But this is you know, the, the, this is kind of a dangerous uh, definition of the communion of saints. I, I I I was taken aback by it. I have to say, when I read it, I was very taken aback by it, and I think it will cause tremendous problems with with non-Catholic Christians, who will th who will just say, mm. what on earth is this? Is this even Christianity? Hmm. Uh, there was a disturbing moment during that Wednesday audience when a man in the crowd began shouting as the Holy Father spoke. You can hear him in the background here yelling, God rejects you, Father. You are not a king. This is not the church of God, end quote. Uh, Pope Francis commented directly about the incident, saying, uh, a few minutes ago we heard a man who was screaming, shouting, who had some kind of problem. I don't know if it was psychological or physical or spiritual, but he's a brother of ours who has a problem. I would like to end by praying for him, for our brother who is suffering, poor man, because if he was shouting, it is because he is suffering. Damien, your reaction uh, to the Pope's response and that outburst? Who knows? The guy may, may have been psychologically disturbed, but the Pope's instant reaction is, if you criticise me, then, well, he slapped down that poor woman in St Peter's Square, literally, physically, um, you must be mad. And I don't know if the guy was reacting to or knew in advance of what the Pope was about to say about, you know, blessed are the persecutors, but um, I think the man had a point, don't you? Yeah. Well, he he apparently has a history of yelling out at churches around Rome, uh, I read in some of the reportage. But, uh, you know, we'll see what the story is there. I want to move on to something I think far more consequential uh, regarding this synod on synodality. Cardinal uh, Jean-Claude Hollerich, the relator general of the synod, we should say, gave an interview to a German publication demonstrating support for female deaconesses and ordaining married men as priests. He said, I would have nothing against it, but reforms need a stable foundation. If the pope were now to allow viri probati, the priestly ordination of mature married men and deaconesses, the danger of schism would be great. Uh, now, this is the Archbishop of Luxembourg, again, a synod official. Uh, are you worried that this synod could be used to advance a progressive agenda on things like this, ordaining married men and deaconesses? Well, I'm, I'm not worried. I'm absolutely certain that it will be used to advance a progressive agenda. Now, I take the heretical view in some circles that ordaining married men may well be a very good idea and that we might have avoided some of the terrible scandals of the last few years if we'd ordained more married men as priests. And I, I mean, some of the best priests I know are married. So on that one, I don't have a problem so long as it's done properly, but I certainly don't trust the current train wreck pontificate to oversee this matter. Deaconesses, it'll be the same as in the Anglican Communion. Deaconesses, deacons, priests. Mm, yeah. Uh, Hollerick, in the same interview, was asked, how do you get around the church teaching that homosexuality is a sin? He said, I believe that this is false, but I also believe that here we are 
thinking further about the teaching. So, as the Pope has said in the past, this can lead to a change in teaching. So, I believe that the sociological scientific foundation of this teaching is no longer correct. What was formally condemned was sodomy. Uh, Damien, what do you make of Hollerick's comments there? I think they show the extent to which church teaching has become negotiable. Now, it's all very well for conservative Catholics to say church teaching does not change, it, it merely develops. But mm -hmm. you know, I, I have a, for what it's worth, I've got a PhD in sociology, and all the evidence is that we are moving into a position where church teaching is being molded and changed, and always in a progressive direction. And the challenge for Orthodox Catholics is to decide, do we recognize these quite radical departures from the teaching of the past, which are very obviously in the pipeline? Mm. Yeah, no, no, it, it is a troubling slide. Um, on the on marriage front, uh, basic morality, now the sacraments. I mean, it does feel that there's a slippage here, and one wonders where this ends, where does this go, and what is the end goal here, if not ultimately just to break people's hearts and drive them from the pews. Um, before we run out of time, I, I need to get your take on the guardians of the tradition, uh, that motto proprio the Pope passed back in the summer, this crackdown on the, the traditional Latin mass. Um, how is it being implemented in the U.K.? English Archbishop Arthur Roche, the prefect of the Congregation for uh, Divine Worship, said recently he believes most of the world's bishops understand the pope's directive and support it, Damien. Is that what you're seeing in the U.K.? In the U.K., I am seeing surreptitious opposition to it from some unlikely bishops. I'm not going to say who they are. And one of the reasons for that is that nobody can stand Arthur Roach. He's this dreadful sort of pompous mock gentility, the way he says, oh, I expect to be shown the, the due deference to a, a senior curial archbishop who's about to become a prince of the church. Um, they call him his preeminence in Rome because he's swanning around as if he's already a cardinal. I mean, they, they, they look at him stuffing himself with all these dainty morsels and swanky Roman restaurants. Oh, I'll have another slice of tiramisu. Thank you very much a taste for the finer things in life. They've seen him manoeuvring. I've seen him over 20 years manoeuvring his way up the hierarchy of the church. And even for somebody like Cardinal Nichols, he doesn't want to be told what to do by Arthur Roach, of all people. They might agree that they don't like the traditional Latin mass, but they don't want Arthur Roach swanking, throwing his not inconsiderable weight around. Mm. Uh, Cardinal Vincent Nichols of Westminster seems a bit more supportive of, of the traditional Latin Mass. Is that a proper read? It is a proper read, but I don't think, because Cardinal Nichols is no stranger to maneuverings himself, I don't think it's out of any particular respect for the traditional Latin Mass. I think it's just a determination not to be not to be pushed around by his successor as General Secretary of the Bishops' mm. Conference, because mm -hmm. Roach will be unbearable uh, you... as soon as he's got himself into the you know expensive robes of a cardinal. Absolutely unbearable, mm. and he'll lord it over Vincent. 
You, you tweeted recently about a survey by the Latin Mass Society in the U.K. Fifty-seven percent of those surveyed said they would consider going over to the Schismatic Society of St. Pius X if the restrictions of guardians of the tradition were enforced. Do you believe that this motu proprio is purposely attempting to force these traditionalists into schism? Is that the point of it? Yes, I do. Yes, I do, but I also deplore the Latin Mass Society's stupid device of a Twitter poll, for goodness sake, the most unscientific and ridiculous device you could possibly use, which basically reveals that a number of disaffected people on Twitter want to go over to the SSPX, which is exactly what Pope Francis wants to hear, because he'd, he'd like everybody pushed out, pushed into the, out of the main body in the church and into the SSPX, and then he might try and get some control of the SSPX. What a stupid thing for the Latin Mass Society to do. Mm. Before we go tonight, I wanted to mention your dear sister uh, of happy memory, uh, Carmel Thompson, who passed away in November after battling cancer. Our condolences, of course, to you and the family. Uh, but you're doing something special on her behalf and in her memory with Father Ben Keeley uh, at the Nazarene.org. Tell us about that. I certainly am. Father Ben, who's one of my dearest friends and whom Carmel adored, um, Father Ben traveled a long way to celebrate the ordinary at Mass in her kitchen. And, you know, this is mm. a, a poor woman who didn't have received a single pastoral visit from her own parish priest. Disgraceful. Anyway, Father Ben mm. runs Nazarene.org, spelt with an S, otherwise you'll Google the wrong charity. Mm. And we're going to support his work helping Christians stay in their home countries in the Middle East. And Carmel was very, very keen. She'd already donated money to it. And so that we set up a Carmel fund. Um, we're also, mm. by the way, going to have a, a memorial service for her um, in the Ordinariate Church, um, at which I hope that we'll, we'll be premiering a work by the great Catholic composer, Sir James McMillan, in her memory. Now, she was very, very self-effacing, but she was a beautiful, beautiful soul. Talking of the communion of saints, mm. If the notion of a saint means anything, then, in my opinion, Carmel was one, and I'm very honored to have been her brother and heartbroken to have lost her. Mm. Mm. Well, God bless you all, and, and again, um, condolences to you. I know, I know how close you were. You can find Damien Thompson's commentary at spectator.co.uk. And follow him on Twitter at Holy Smoke. And if you'd like to support Nazarene.org and the persecuted Christians of the Middle East, on behalf of Carmel Thompson, you can visit Nazarene with an S.org. Thank you, Damien. Many of us have plans to grow in our careers or improve our fitness, but what about spiritual success? What about spiritual fitness? My next guest addresses this topic in his new book, Spiritual Excellence, The Path to Happiness, Holiness, and Heaven. Please welcome a fellow New Orleanian, Deacon Rich Eason, to the program. Uh, Deacon, how did you come up with this spiritual guide? What inspired you to write it and release it now? When you think about our world today, so many people are struggling with many issues in their lives that are robbing them of their joy, happiness, and peace. Issues like fear, stress, and anxiety, worried about the pandemic, the economy, our government, the direction we're going in, maybe suffering from temptation and sin or doubts in their faith, or difficulty with conflicts and adversity in the workplace and their families, or having a hard time making decisions. And we really can't find a simple remedy for that in our earthly world. 
But there is a remedy for that in, in our spiritual world. And EWTN has agreed to publish this book, Spiritual Excellence, The Path to Happiness, Holiness, and Heaven, that provides a remedy for all these kinds of issues. And this concept of spiritual goes back thousands of years to the writings of St. Paul in his letters to the Corinthians and the Philippians when he spoke about excellence in all that we do. So that was the origin of the concept. And then over the course of 40 years as an attorney, working with hundreds and hundreds of witnesses, numerous clients, and now almost 10 years as a deacon, going in and out of nursing homes and hospitals and homeless shelters, all these kinds of issues kept surfacing over and over again, and many people wanted to talk with me about them. So it seemed to make sense. What can we put together from a spiritual perspective that can help people resolve these issues and get on the path of spiritual excellence and restore that great joy, happiness, and peace in their lives on an everyday basis. So that was the origin of the whole. Yeah. And of course, it's all been inspired it, by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. In, in one chapter, you discuss how suffering is a part of life. And you write that God gave us tools to manage all forms of suffering, uh, physical, mental, spiritual. What are some of those tools? It's real simple. It's, it's having courage in the face of adversity a continuous uh, prayer life on a regular basis to our Lord and the Holy Spirit and His Blessed Mother Mary, uh, having hope for the future, and shifting the attention away from yourself and focusing on other people. And I can give you a great example of that. There was a high school student down here named Ashley Code who passed away a few years ago. She was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and lived for a year. And all during that year, her focus and her attention was on other people. And the principal of the school asked her, I'm so sorry that you're suffering, Ashley. And her response was, it's okay, sister. Jesus managed his suffering. And so that concept, kinds of concepts of ways to manage suffering in our lives. And this book takes on all of these issues of fear, stress, and anxiety, suffering, temptation, and sin, and so on, as we've been talking about, and addresses those things with scripture passages, the writings of the saints, the encyclicals of the popes, many spiritual writers, in a very succinct way, so their individual reader, in the course of seven to nine pages, can get all the basic information that you need to manage any and all of these issues. I, I love how the book's designed to help the reader come up with a spiritual plan. Uh, now, now, how does the book help readers achieve that? Many, many books today are will have several hundred pages in them, and you can read them, and you draw away a couple of points that may last in your mind or in your spiritual journey for a period of time. What we're looking at in this concept is how can we get spiritual excellence, happiness, holiness, leading you to heaven, a part of a continuous basis in your life? And that's where we came up with an individual spiritual plan, again, all guided by the Holy Spirit. And this plan mm -hmm. has parts to it. The first part is partaking of the sacraments, the Holy Eucharist at Mass and confession on a regular basis. The second part focuses on your prayer life and offers many ideas on different ways to pray. A third aspect of the plan is focusing on your families, not to spend more quality time with them. Then we spend time talking about fasting, uh, giving up maybe some of the pleasures in life that get you on that spiritual journey and stay on that spiritual journey. And another big one is giving up maybe your most challenging temptation in your life. And then another part of the plan is participating in ministry in the church, 
and all of these different components uh, help the individual stay on this path to of spiritual excellence to have that continuous joy, happiness, and peace. Mm -hmm. You write about the nature of power and influence. Um, this is from the book. When we think of great power, we often contemplate political strength, athletic skills, business prowess, or intellectual abilities. The vast majority of us will never experience those kinds of powers. However, the undeniable truth is that in this life is that these earthly powers are only temporary and pale by comparison to the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is available to each of us, not just to a select few. How does one's life change when they let the Holy Spirit into their lives? And how have you personally seen and experienced this in your ministry? When you take a look at mankind, we're all on this spectrum. One side of the, the spectrum has people who are living kind of away from their faith and are struggling day to day. And then the other side of the spectrum is those who are on autopilot, totally focused on the will of Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide them in all that they do each and every day. And where we want to gravitate to, of course, is that side to be on the autopilot the Holy Spirit is inspiring our lives each and every day. And when we get into that practice of holiness, it leads to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit all day, every day. And I learned this myself in my early 30s. I was struggling in many aspects of my life. We had three young boys at home we were trying to raise. I was in a law practice where I was in over my head. My father had been in the hospital with open heart surgery and diabetes. They cut off one of his legs and had a family member in a deep Unit, and I just couldn't function every day. So I pulled out the New Testament and literally outlined a few chapters a week, the entire New Testament over many months. And at that point, I realized the Holy Spirit was speaking to me each and every day. And I learned to rely on the Holy Spirit in the challenges of law practice, the challenges of parenting or helping manage others who are suffering. And from that point on, I realized that in the pursuit of spiritual excellence on a daily basis, putting the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your soul is a game changer. And we all know people who have that type of holiness and have that inspiration from the Holy Spirit guiding them each and every day, because you see them. You want to be those folks, and they make a big difference in ours as well by being role models. How have people reacted to the book? I know you've taken it to parishes, you've run uh, missions and, and really days of uh, spiritual excellence, almost a seminar. What's the reaction been? We've done a survey for all those who participated, and uh, the survey was results were really awesome. It gave us a communication that this concept of spiritual excellence and how to challenge the issues that we deal with, the remedies for them, and the individual spiritual plans makes a huge difference. We had one of our uh, participants agree to adopt a foster child as, a, as part of their own individual spiritual plan to move forward in their spiritual journey for themselves and for their family members and all those around them. So it's a very powerful experience, and the joy of being in a series atmosphere is as continuous exchange and dialogue among the participants about their own individual journeys, and we all draw from those experiences to go stronger in our faith and closer. Great. We will leave it there, Deacon. Uh, Spiritual Excellence, The Path to Happiness, Holiness, and Heaven by Deacon Richard Eason is available at bookstores everywhere and online and at the EWTN 
religious catalog. Deacon, thank you for being here. Raymond, thank you so much for the time today. Happy to do it. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. And next week, my exclusive interview with actor Mark Wahlberg about his inspirational and very personal new film, Father Stew. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, I'm Raymond Arroyo. See you next time. Bye now.